he doesn't directly say that, but I think there's more nuance to it. Then, yeah. I mean, he says it is time that we let go of the false pretense that cutting entitlements is a choice. It is not. Either we cut them today, or we will have to cut them much more tomorrow. Look at me. I have a shoe in my mouth. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Good morning. And welcome to the Skippy and Dougal Show. What's up, Dougal? Oh, Ooh, I like that. Look at you, like official-like. All official-like. I like it. Yeah. Um, good. This was a, uh, it was a busy, busy work week. Okay. I'm going to throw that out there. Um, and so most of my investing time, I spent doing one of two things. Primarily, I was watching what happened at the Berkshire meeting last week, which is seven hours of content. So I haven't made it all the way through. So you get the pleasure of a little bit of that today and probably a little bit of that uh, next time as well. How many times did Munger fall asleep in those seven hours? It's unclear when he's awake and when he's asleep. <laughs> so unclear, unclear. Before we hop in, please rate, review the podcast. We love it. Uh, and remember, skippydougals at gmail.com. That is where we get our listener mail, your commentary, your question, Terry, your Sherry O. Terry, whatever you got. Just send it over, skippydougals at gmail.com. Appreciate it. Ooh, Sherry O'Terry. All right. I got fired up this week about a bunch of things, but those who listen to the podcast know I get fired up about sports as much as anything else. True story. So uh, NFL schedule was released. Douglas, do you know what the NFL schedule is like? You know how many PhDs they have sitting in a room trying to make things fair? What they do is they take your record from the last year and then they work within some parameters to try and make sure that the best teams often have the hardest schedule and the worst teams have a easier schedule. And then that's all in the act of parity. The league wants parity for multiple reasons, but it's mostly to keep 32 fan bases engaged, which leads to increased ratings in their eyes, which then leads to more billions of dollars hitting their bank accounts, right? Does this all make sense? Do you know like the cursory background of you what they're trying to do? Okay, perfect. In addition to that, because they're greedy jerks, and I don't really have any beef <laughs> with the NFL. I'm just fired up this morning. They have said, oh, well, we better play games in London and games in Germany to expand the growth of this sport. They also play games in Mexico City. They haven't done an Asia one yet, but I'm sure it's coming, right? A Japan or somewhere else. So my point being, they hire all these PhDs or really smart people have these massive computer models to try and build their schedule. And their talking point is they do that to be fair. Like it's a fair and balanced schedule. Okay. Okay. I'm reading. I'm reading it. Here's the thing that they don't apparently take into account. And that's how far teams are asked to travel, which is a massive competitive advantage or disadvantage, in my opinion. So the Seattle Seahawks, for this year's uh, schedule, will travel almost 32,000 miles and cover 36 time zones. Compared to the Cincinnati Bengals, who will cover less than 12,000 miles and only cover 12 time zones. Before you continue, yeah, in the United States of America, the United States of America, 
there are what five time zones yeah how are you gonna cover 36 how are you gonna cover 36 out of five this is like our boy <laughs> our boy who's predicting 18 of the last two recessions like how how are you gonna do it i believe it's um like changing time zone <laughs> so so like if you go from central to mountain but actually i could verify that methodology for now just focus on mileage right you have <laughs> one team you're asking to cover 32,000 miles another team you're asking to cover 12,000 miles let's do some rounding here you have one team traveling three times as much you i mean obviously i don't even know the schedule but just based on that total mileage covered the seahawks have to play a game in europe and then they have to play a bunch of east coast games I just think there's a larger point here, which is it's kind of the things we measure, the things we don't, the things we focus on, whatever the KPIs in your company are. Don't say we want X, Y, Z and just completely forget about something else that's also meaningful to the fairness of your competition if your goal is fairness. Now, maybe the NFL's stated goal is fairness and they don't care at all about it, but that's a huge disadvantage. When I was first looking at this, uh, going off the top, right? You got Seattle Seahawks, San Francisco 49ers, Miami Dolphins, LA Rams, LA Chargers. So I was, I was reading it. And I went, okay, if, if, you, if you look at the country, Seattle, upper left. Yep. Right? So it makes sense that like you have to travel. I was like, Miami, lower right. It makes sense. And so I was kind of saying, is it that the if you're on the extremes, you just have to travel more because that's how geography works? But then I got to the Kansas City Chiefs and the Arizona Cardinals. Arizona's it's west, but still, yeah. Kansas City is pretty middle of the country. So if you're top ten travel there, if you take, uh, I was thinking like trips versus mileage, kind mm -hmm. of as well. Like in order to cover the same number of miles, if you're in the middle of the country, you have to be traveling more. I think this means because really, if you look at your top ten, you're onto something. Uh, to round out the top 10, I think you have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New England Patriots. All those teams are pretty much on the East Coast or the West Coast. So it makes sense they travel more. I assume Kansas City and Arizona, well, at least Kansas City has a Europe trip in there. But Maybe, this yeah. is kind of my point. Maybe this means teams in middle America, like the Green Bay Packers, the Chicago Bears, and the Cincinnati Bengals, which all travel the least amount. Maybe those are the teams that you send to Europe because the rest of their schedule is like Cincinnati to Pittsburgh, Cincinnati to Philadelphia, whatever the case might be, right? Cincinnati to Cleveland. That's a drive. That's barely even a flight. So it just seems yeah, there's something unfair. There. I like your what you measure, what you're not. You know, it's like, a, I mean, if you bring this back into the, the world of finance investing, what you, your, your qualms with Eat a Bitta, right? And whatnot. Oh, it's garbage. Right? Yeah. So I get that. Cool. Okay, so if we continue on the... Let's just move to Doomsday Land, okay? With our boy, <laughs> Stanley Duncan Miller. Uh, he, Stanley Duncan Miller, excuse me, I said that poorly the first time around. He was at USC this week, and that caused what seemed like a major firestorm in my circles with people consuming this content and then kind of doing second-level thinking with this content, then having their own freakouts... And largely what he talked about, there's so much here, Douglas, that I'm going to need your help to support just getting all of his talking points out. But largely what he talked about is government spending, government debt, entitlement spending. Did I miss anything? Yeah, debt and spending. 
is debt like and debt and spending is most of it. And then I you you did not agree with this take, but my take was like, world's coming to an end. What's the point of it? Let's uh can I read a quote? And I may end <laughs> yes. up reading two quotes. Uh so he says, Let me give you some facts. The share of fiscal spending going to seniors has been growing dramatically since the 60s when Medicare and Medicaid joined Social Security as federal entitlements. Today we spend six times more per senior than per child in the US. Think social security versus education. Almost 40% of all taxes are spent on seniors, and this trend is only starting. The chart, which we'll talk about, shows that we are just getting underway in terms of the fiscal consequences of this. In uh, 25 years, spending on seniors will grow to take 70% of all taxes. Effectively, with entitlements compounding away, everything else gets squeezed. So that's kind of point number one. He has this Really cool graph, which will be on the Substack, and I'll we'll throw it on Twitter too. That shows Social Security spending as a percent of GDP. It's currently four point nine percent, and then Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and uh, exchange subsidies currently five point five percent of GDP. It's projected to go um, as high as seventeen percent of GDP in twenty eighty, but who really cares about twenty eighty? So much is going to change. The only thing I can guarantee is this projection is coming. Mm-hmm. And what what this chart is saying that he doesn't say directly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember reading this directly, because he, he talks about entitlements, right, which we will continue to go into. What this chart says is you got Social Security, which more or less stays the same, like not quite, but relatively speaking, goes from 5% to yeah. 6.5% yeah. roughly, right? The rest is health care. So what you're saying is, like one way to say this is health care costs in this country are too high, which is not a surprise to anyone, right? We've talked about that on here. People have talked about that. But Medicare, Medicaid, exchange subsidies, that is subsidizing healthcare costs in the country, which you you can separate out from the broad category of entitlements. I'm not saying that's not what that is, but mm-hmm. you can separate that well, out, right? I like his framing to say that 40% of all pa- taxes are pa- spent on seniors. Like that's, it's just helpful context, right? And if that goes to 70%, to me, you go, yeah, it just doesn't, the bills don't add up. So the the backdrop that's going on here that I he mentions in a roundabout way, but a more direct way of saying it is with the increased borrowing costs and the size of our deficit, what has happened uh, really in the last six months is that our borrowing costs have skyrocketed currently the federal interest payments are about a trillion dollars and trending up rapidly because of interest rates. And what that means is we're spending the same amount servicing our debt as a government that we are on defense spending, which when I, I don't know, whenever I see a breakdown of the budget, I'm always amazed at how big that piece of the pie for defense spending is. So that is all part of this same context. But what Drunken Miller really wants... Let me ask it to you this way. What does Drunken Miller want us to do, Dougals? What's the point is what I took away. Like, you might as well just keep at it. No, I'm joking. (laughs) What what, what he's saying is, like, we got to, we have to rein it in somehow. Take some action. Let's specifically look at entitlements, which I'll classify that as giveaways, right, that the government provides and cut that today. He uses the metaphor of 
or the example, I should say, of France to say like, even look at even the French is what he didn't say that language, but I interpreted this as like even the French like can get this right. And so cut entitlements today so that we can rein in spending is my read on what he's saying. It's funny because um, I don't think this is written, but in his uh, like talking points, he went through kind of like even the socialist French, like even even Macron is sure there's riots in the streets but at least he's trying to take care of future generations he's um on a college tour and the reason he says he's on a college tour is because it's the young people that would be harmed by this there's a another point that i don't know what that we've covered that's just he's he's 100 right in my opinion um and that is we've had crazy debt spending in the past in this country but We've always like taken our medicine, right? Um, so he talks about spending to finance World War II, and then you come back, and not only did were we fiscally conservative, but we also had three point seven kids per family, right? You created demographics that were like uh, a boon to find. It's the whole baby boomer thing, boomer thing. Like you created this working class that could pay the entitlements for the next generation and not only since 1980 like he, he talks about uh volker again taking his medicine and causing a terrible recession in 1982 that i think it's fair to say enabled 30 to 40 years of solid growth but then what we've done in the past 20 years is we've had a few so-called crises where we've spent way more money than we have as government, but we've never taken our medicine. And he, his point about what we did the last 10 years in terms of this is like boom time and we should have been running a surplus, paying down some debt and like financing the future. And what we've done is run the largest deficits ever with no end in sight. There are two things I after reading this that I, I want to do. Um, I think there's some like diving into what's behind some of these charts that I think is interesting to do. I also think that there are, you can never be complete, right? And stuff like this, it's a talk, right? That he's giving, but kind of like I mentioned with the healthcare point before, there's more underlying some of these elements than, than just what's stated. Cause if, if I, if I come to you, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going back to my, my healthcare point before, but if I come to you and just say, we're spending more on old people than we are on young people. The implications of that are very different than the healthcare costs of this country are too high. If you take down the healthcare costs, then we're no longer like that, that ratio changes completely. Cause it's not like saying we want to do whatever we can for old people. Majority it's about healthcare, social security, a little different, right? Social security is a little different, but that's not the runaway cost. Uh, yes, but there's so much more to that. There's a demographics piece to that. We want to be spending, we will be on the path to spend 70% yes. on uh, seniors if we didn't have a crazy ratio of seniors to younger people. So that, that's the, the thing, other component. Yeah. Yeah. The thing he doesn't mention directly is like in a smart way. I don't, I don't mean that this is so complex. I think you'll know, but it's like we could use some more immigration in this country, right? Yeah. yeah. That, that, <laughs> the, there's that a, was going to be my other, my other underlying piece is the full demographics. Look. Yeah. Yeah. Again, cause going to it's if you just say we're spending more on old people than we are on young people, the, 
the impetus of that, I think, gets lost behind one healthcare costs in this country out of control Two, the demographics are completely out of whack. Mm -hmm. That's different than what he's trying to say here is take away entitlements. There's a, the implication of those two things is different. Like one implication of what we just said is like, don't leave your bedroom tonight and have some kids. You, you, you know what I mean? Like that's very different than take away entitlements. I didn't, I didn't get a clear directive that he's saying take away entitlements. I got a clear directive of like, you have this equation of five main factors and you got to do something about it. Yeah. One, you could change the demographics drastically. If you do so, that makes it so there you're not on this ship where you immediately have to uh, cut or remove healthcare spending. He, he doesn't directly say that, but I think there's more nuance to it. Then. Yeah. I mean, he says, it is time that we let go of the false pretense that cutting entitlements is a choice. It is not. Either we cut them today or we will have to cut them much more tomorrow. Oh, look at, look at me. I have a shoe in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Um, let me, there's one other point he makes and then I'll let you run with it, but I, I've never seen it this way. I didn't um, spend time with the uh, Joint Committee on Taxation or anything. I have not fact-checked Mr. Yeah, yeah, Drunkard yeah. Miller's work here. But he says, the financial recklessness of the last decade is like watching a horror movie unfold. And then he talks about, during the last decade, our debt grew from $15 trillion to $31 trillion today, uh, which is a level of indebtedness that only compares to World War II. He goes on to talk about how that figure, the 31 trillion, does not include entitlements. And if you include entitlements, he says the present value of that debt approaches 200 trillion. Now, I've never seen it presented that way. And it would not surprise me if the US government, that's kind of a dishonest budget, if I understand him correctly, to say, well, we owe 31 trillion, but we aren't planning to pay social security, Medicare, Medicaid in the future. So we don't include that in our budget projections. Did I understand his point right? And is that what's actually happening? Let me, let me read this one more again. I, I think so. Cause I do, I think what he's saying here is that uh, like, let's take, let's take a, a balance sheet of a company. Yeah. And what he's separating out here we're saying maybe that we're separating out that he's calling uh false is debt that you have taken out so like spending that you have financed via debt the difference between that and like accounts payable absolutely sure effectively but Th that's what he's but saying. when no one's saying that right now those entitlements no party no politician is saying that those things will even be cut and then we don't include them in it's it's kind of more you, you, you a budget projection rather yeah, than exactly. debt. It's not, it's not really it's a debt relevant. Thing. It's not really a debt but thing. It's, it's relevant to the conversation because those are planned expenditures. They are planned expenditures, but but it's uh, you leave the revenue aspect of this off the table, right? Like sure. right, just just like you have accounts payable, you're also going to sell more widgets, and so like you you can pay that off via revenue. You don't have to take debt out to do it. But in a in a relatively low tax, which some people will yell at a brother for that, me calling this low tax, but I'm saying relatively, like if you go back in history, remember we were talking about old taxes back in the day, right? And if you look at the tax rates 
I don't have them in front of me. Like the tax rates around World War II time were also very different. Like the what the government was bringing in was a lot higher. This is when uh, Templeton was run was trying to leave right the country right because you had let me let me just look this up so we can uh, we can pull facts out. I'm about to go to my Google machine while it's still a company and look up historical U.S. tax rates. Okay. 1862 to 20. How do we have these records just at my finger knuckles? All right. Okay. If I go back to the 1940s, this is when the World War II's was going on. What do you believe in 1945 was the highest tax bracket in the America? I knew you're going to go highest tax bracket. That's not a good proxy for the actual tax receipt but it, but it but is it's no, 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 90 no, no, no. something no. percent yeah 94 percent. so you've got a range what's important here i don't know what the average is right i i don't we i could probably look that up but in 1945 the lowest tax bracket was 23 percent, and the highest tax bracket was 94 percent. if you come to today i'm talking about this dia the lowest tax bracket is 10 percent, and the highest is 37 percent. so that that's a difference. Like it's it's the compounding factors. I think that you kind of throw in here with everything that he's saying is we're right now at least in a much lower tax range situation than you were back then. No one's paying that high. So government receipts, if that's lower, government expenditures is higher. Debt is high. Then then you take into account your accounts payable. You're like, how are you going to pay it? I guess it's going to be more debt. I think that's like the the second. Yeah, and debt's getting right more expensive than you can't afford more debt. Yeah. I mean, and jacking it's all taxes, pretty simple. Not favorable right now. I don't think people would be incredibly happy. Well, some people would not be incredibly happy about that. But it, it, the question just becomes, when are you going to take your medicine? And if our yeah. politicians have decided we're never going to run a balanced budget, or in this case, a surplus... Um, the other points, I don't know if it's Drunken Miller or somewhere else this week that I consumed... But I think it was Drunken Miller. He also talks about the downside of uh, the U.S. being the unquestioned reserve currency because there's no one to, to check our debt, really, right? It, when, when we get crazy printing money, basically, the rest of the world still buys our debt. If we weren't the unquestioned reserve currency, I think maybe by now, but if not in the very near future, people would be like, nope, I'm going elsewhere. And then... It's an actual free market where, where we'd have to take, we'd be forced to take our medicine, rather than leaving it in the hands of our politicians. I find this stuff fascinating. I don't think there's an easy answer, but yeah, quality. it is. I'm gonna use two things that you just said to make a transition in there. Okay. One is there was a 13 year old female that asked a question at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. If we start off by saying. Hi, I'm 13 years old. This is my sixth annual shareholders meeting. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> so sorry for her. And then she she asked about like de-dollarization. Um, and then and Buffett was, was just like, you should probably come up here. And he said two things. One, you should come up here and answer questions. And two, can you make sure to ask a smarter question next year? That's what he said to her. But the the other piece was with Charlie Munger. And he was saying that basically what we're doing is uh, people or politicians are buying votes via taxes, like tax rates yep. right now. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so I'm gonna use that to transition to your favorite topic, though, 
the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. He does not care about the annual Berkshire. I wouldn't say that. It's not that you don't care. It's a little overhyped. There you go. There you go. There you go. But I enjoy it. So as I mentioned before, I'm not all the way through. I've made it about halfway through because it's seven hours of material and it's a busy week. But I find nuggets of wisdom and I find some entertainment in this whole thing. It is just, it just gets me going. So if you do not mind, and if you do mind, I am going to run through like some of the questions that were asked and some of the banter that occurred. And I'd love to get, love for you to hop in, get your reaction. Some of this. Okay. You ready for this? Yeah. I got a few things. Someone came up and asked about how value investing is going to change given disruptive technologies. It's a much longer question, but that's basically what they asked. Charlie, (laughs) Charlie says value investors should get used to making less. Buffett comes back and said, you've been saying this for a really long time. And Charlie said, yeah, and we're making less. That, that is what he said about Berkshire Hathaway. And, and Buffett was just like, yeah, like that, that, that was true. Then Warren Buffett says, which I think this is really the, he's to answer the question. He said, new things coming along doesn't give you opportunities. What brings opportunities is other people doing dumb things. Mm-hmm. Fully agree. Warren also says, and he said this several times through, uh, through the conversation, not just for this question, but multiple times. He said, I'd love to be born today. And go out there with a small pile of money. Because, sorry, let me back up. What One of the things he said right before this was he was talking about how uh, Berkshire Hathaway has like $500 billion. And what he says to Charlie is, he's like, we never thought we'd be able to manage $500 billion. Yes, we're making less. Like, this is, this is disadvantageous to having a lower amount of money. And so he said, I'd love to be born today and go out there with a small pile of money and turn it into a big pile of money. And Charlie says... I would not like the thrill of my big pile of money turning back into a small pile of money. I like my big pile of money just the way it is. <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> you don't you don't care? I love it. I love this stuff. Okay. Nothing to say to that. <laughs> Another thing is uh, someone asked about his thoughts on the state of the country and what the biggest problems facing the country are. Um, similar to what he just said, what, what I just mentioned. Warren said this country is better than it has ever been. He'd rather be born now than in 1930. And he'd rather be born in the U.S. versus anywhere else. One of the things I enjoy about him saying this, whether you agree with these points or not, a lot of times people will, I find, that people will say some version of things are getting worse. Um, it's so much, It's so much worse than it was before. And I like how he flips it. To say, like, would you, and he turned to Charlie one time and said, like, you were born in 1924. Would you rather be there? And the answer is just like, no, I would, I would not rather be in 1924. Yeah. So he'd rather have an outhouse and no electricity. I mean, this is, like, yeah, I mean this, come this, on. This is the There's thing. Just, this is the thing. Yeah. Right. But the one thing about the biggest problem facing the country, one thing is politically, Buffett says that we used to have partisanship, which he found to be healthy. But now we have tribalism and that just creates people not even listening to what's happening on their side and just like myopically following whatever it is, the, the doctrine mm-hmm. of the time. And that he says he thinks is dangerous. So politics right now are no good. That is really dangerous. I love this country, how we ask athletes or investors to give us their political takes. Like it, it's hilarious. Buffett's a really smart guy. I don't know that I care too much about 
how he's going to solve our political challenges, but that's just me. <laughs> it, it reminds me when, uh, when you know, Trayvon Martin, right? When yeah. the Trayvon Martin situation happened, I'm watching the news and they, they're like, to, here to give us their opinion on the Trayvon Martin situation is Blair Underwood, who is a black actor. Like that, that I was, is, that I was is, trying to figure out who Blair all, Underwood is. Right? It, yeah. Is all. And it's just like, we found a black person. Like that, that, which is the only, we found a black person. We'd like to, we'd like for you to comment on this situation with another black person. Like that was all. Anyway, to your point. Okay. Then someone asked, uh, when you die, Buffett, when, when Buffett dies, his plan is he's going to take his A shares, because there's a couple different uh, share classes, right? A shares and convert them into B shares. Those B shares are then going to go to a whole bunch of charities. Those charities over a decade or so are going to sell those shares. They're going to use that to then invest in, you know, whatever it is that they they want to accomplish. And so they're saying when you die, you're concerned that there's going to be a big corporate raider, like an icon or someone who it probably won't be icon, but someone like that to then buy up all the B shares and basically control this company and ruin everything. Right. That, that was the that was the thing. And he said, no, it's going to cost too much. Mm-hmm. He's like, if you if you do the math on what it's going to be. Like it's gonna cost way too much, and they're gonna they're gonna say they can just take out like the trillion dollars in debt or whatever it's gonna be to buy all these shares. But he's like, it's not gonna like that's not gonna happen. Um, but more importantly, one thing he said that wasn't directly related to the question, but I really love this point because we we've discussed a version of this before. Is he started talking about decision making, and just said Berkshire Hathaway will never make a decision that will kill us, and. It's just, it's such an important point generally in investing. Again, I don't really know what it had to do with the question I was asked, but it like directly hits on a point that we touch on all the time. It's like, just avoid the death line. If nothing else, don't, don't do what that doctor, whatever that we talked about, like 18 months ago did and take, build up this nest egg and then take it all and then buy into SPAC options. Like, cause that's a, it's either zero or it's going to be a lot like, don't just avoid hitting the death line. And I, I really love that point. Okay. A couple other quick hits, and then we can move on to something else because I can see your mongering, aka falling asleep. Okay. I'm learning a lot here. <laughs> I really don't like you. Okay. Uh, so Charlie was asked, specifically, Charlie was asked about the impact of AI, artificial intelligence. And his answer was short and sweet. He goes, he said, I think that old fashioned intelligence works pretty well. That's so good. <laughs> and that was it. That was all. That was all. He, that was all he said. All right. Can I can I do my rant here? There's um, all sorts of people claiming that AI is going to be great at investing. Maybe it will, but generally, we built AI to think like a human. Humans are terrible investors. How does that? What's the hypothesis here? If the AI is really good and it thinks like a human, it's going to be a terrible investor. <laughs> yeah, I, I fully agree. I do not understand. Not at all. Okay. Good. Yeah. All right. Then Charlie was asked about commercial real estate. And so there was this Wall Street Journal article recently that came out that quotes him about talking about how it's all going to crap, commercial real estate. And so he's asked about it. His answer was short, as all of his answers are. Um, he said, it's difficult. I like what we do better. That that was what his response was. And then uh, Buffett comes in and says, how much is a building worth? And his answer to his own question was, however much someone is willing to borrow. I think that like nailed the like the bubble mentality of the past decade, like quite well. 
I mean, I love that because what ha- what happened with the business model, the real estate business model in the past, let's say since uh, 2008, it was really how much debt you could layer on top of your other debt. It, the, the, so many real estate businesses were like, well, you buy the rental and then as soon as it cash flows enough that you can refinance, you take out more debt to buy the next rental. And some of those people did just fine because they were able to pay down their debt through property appreciation that like it actually worked. But it's a little bit of a house of cards underlying yeah. the the typical situation. And I think commercial uh, real estate might have been even worse than your typical residential. And then it's more expensive to borrow debt right now. And you, you have all these other dynamics. Like, I I can't wait yeah. to watch it. Yep. I know you can't with your popcorn. <laughs> okay. Someone asked about estate planning. Th- their point was kind of like people aren't getting the next generation ready for what they might inherit if there's something to inherit. And Buffett goes on. He, he has like this long answer about uh, about estate planning and how you have to take it family by family because all families are different. All kids are different. Ages are different. Like Buffett does all this. And then he's like, Charlie? And Charlie goes, estate planning? Just hold the stock. Just hold the stock. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's what he said. That's, that's what he said. What's that mean? <laughs> does it matter? <laughs> like... That, that's what he said there was um right before they like break for lunch they said we have time for one more question before lunch um and the question was asked of charlie and it was it was just like you've said xyz in the past you've called these people stupid for doing blah 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 and does that still hold and their thought was that he was going to like elaborate on what he said before and why he said it and he just went yes and so then puffet's like well i guess we can do one more question <laughs> like yes that's it I I find a lot of entertainment here. I think you're so you're what you said before is right. I mean, basically, you've got these two people who have been in the public spotlight um, increasingly, but in the public spotlight for like five decades, right? They have a great track record, and so people are listening to what they have to say about topics. They're also two well-read people, and so they yeah. can comment on different things right and so it's in the breath i think is really interesting but your point is also like they're they're investors do they understand how to fix politics do they understand how to fix china not fix sorry the u.s china relations not the country um n- no they just have they have opinions on everything and it's freaking entertaining to me <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you love it let's continue doing something that makes Dougal's happy with uh four quick hits on passion projects for you okay Oh, okay. Go for it. First is Robin Hood. Mm. Robin Hood not only allowed 24-hour tr- trading Monday through Friday. I'm not sure when that kicks off, but they announced it this week. They also are now generating more revenue from interest than they are from transaction fees. Do you have any rants about this? Are you upset? You're typically upset at Robin Hood. I get most upset when it comes to people going into margin debt. I don't know where this interest specifically is coming from, but uh, that's what I get most upset about. And the fact that they changed my ability to do reporting well, but those are two things I get most upset about. But this, the 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 transition to like banking for them, like I'm not mad at the 4.65% APY, like their yield. It's not 4.65 at all. 
Mo- you have to pay <laughs> five bucks a month to get that. And when most people do the math based on average balances, uh, you lose money when you do that. If you're paying for interest, I just have to interject. There are plenty yeah. of other places to make 4.65% without a $5 a month fee, just so you know. It, de- it depends on what percent of your portfolio $60 is. Absolutely. Yeah. But still, I can, I can make you more than 4.65% elsewhere. Yeah, I'm getting my 4.65% elsewhere. I didn't say I had the cash there. I'm just saying I'm not <laughs> mad at it. <laughs> Are you mad at 24-hour trading? I am a little bit mad at that. Um, I don't think we need more opportunities for people to make emotional decisions, especially when uh, during that whatever hour, the 16 hours that the market's closed or whatever it is, the liquidity is also a lot lower. And so you're making like emotional decisions at a time where there's potentially more variability. You know, I, I was thinking arbitrage opportunities here. I might put in like some crazy low limit orders on stuff I like <laughs> and see if it gets filled at 3 a.m. <laughs> I just remember, might. Remember we talked about the value of time? Oh, uh, totally. Yeah, that's a whole nother. <laughs> I think fun. we're going to yeah. do uh, an additional breakdown on that for premium subscribers. But okay, go. next Oh, man, you love this company, and it's not good, Diggles. It's not good at all. Twilio. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote from Twilio's CEO. Question. You laid off 30% of your workforce. How does that impact your, uh, basically, your SaaS growth rate? And, oh, sorry, this is not the CFO. It's just an executive. Literally zero. No no impact. Actually, if I'm being honest, the client experience has improved. Did he, in a roundabout way, just say that 30% 30% of his company did nothing potentially and don't <laughs> don't act like don't act like I didn't hear you call them cilio <laughs> okay there's a couple ways to look at this what i think it probably most directly says is that 30% of the company did not impact today's revenue which doesn't mean Whoa. that 30% of didn't do nothing it's because it's fair a, i'm playing right? with words here yeah no 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 i think that that is what it's saying but but even if you look down at the thread that's like that's what folks are playing with this um in a company like this you could have 30% of people that are working on next year 5 years from now like new products new s curves new innovation curves is what i mean by that and so how much are you cutting future growth which Twilio is projecting not much of i'm i have to do a I have to do a, a deeper dive back on Twilio again, because as you stated uh, before, I love this. I'm loving me some Twilio. Um, and Twilio is a sizable portion of my portfolio. It's single digits, but it's like meaningful portion yeah. of my portfolio. And I mentally have this as a, as a forever stock. And so whatever that means, but you know, relatively like long-term. And so the, uh, the fluctuations day to day are either just buying opportunities for me or, or, or nothing. Like it doesn't really matter because it's not real money in my mind. It's like future dollars. But what's interesting right now is Twilio historically, like last year, I'll say when I say historically, last year, what were the big hits on Twilio were stock-based compensation, which is becoming less of an issue. It's still, a, it's still ridiculous. Yeah. But, uh, um, and will they ever be profitable? Those two things specifically in my like in my um thesis like my investment thesis i was like they will be handled like i i feel good about like those in the fullness of time being handled so i'm not worried about that but now what the market is saying is they don't believe it's a growth stock anymore 
that that's like the current like market hypothesis. I'm oversimplifying a bit, but that's basically what it is. And so what I need to figure out is, is that true? Like, so my, like, I want to deep dive again, because that is my, this is either, this is either a time to like, stay, stay the course, dive in, because it's trading, trading very cheaply for a big time growth stock. Yeah. If it's not that, then it's a, it's an unprofitable, outdated train wreck. <laughs> it's like one of those two things. And I just have to make another decision on that. So I just want to dive yeah. back in to, to see if my other hypothesis is uh, if, it, if I still believe in it. It's fascinating because the right approach might here, here might be, this is all noise. And for lack of a better term, stick your head in the sand, believe your initial investing hypothesis that this is a forever stock that you like. Like this is not something that ever appealed to me, but um, it might be like, I don't care what happens in the next five years. I care what happens 10 years from now. And I still believe my hypothesis. A lot of times I see people and myself included get caught up in the day-to-day -day noise and make poor decisions because of it. So maybe that's all that's happening here, but man, that range of outcomes is something. And <laughs> You you said the market might not be valuing them as a growth stock anymore. Uh, this is oversimplified, but oftentimes high growth companies don't lay off 30% of their workforce. Uh, I wouldn't say that. Look, look at, there's lots of high growth companies that are doing that right now. Let's go look at, at me, Dougals. Which, uh, Meta's not a high growth company. You wouldn't you, consider Meta to be a, a growth company? I uh, said high growth meta could possibly I I own meta I could when meta was at 88 bucks a share I considered meta a value stock I did not consider it to be a high growth company like they are still growing their daily active users which is 3 billion but it, again maybe this is just semantics there like they needed this goes back to our drunken miller conversation they needed to take their medicine they needed to be more fiscally conservative that does not mean they can't grow, but it also means they're not doubling or tripling on a yearly basis. You might okay. need a hypothesis with Twilio in order for it to make sense. I mean, what what no, growth no, no, rates no, no, do you no. need with Twilio? I'm, I'm talking, I would say 20% plus a okay. year, 30%, like really. Is That's like a high really growth company? Like 30 I think if you're going, if you're throwing 30% a year, yes. The, okay. I'm not talking about doubling every year. I mean, come on now. <laughs> Just because you're about to hit Ireland, you can't be talking about Dublin all the time. This is a, <laughs> and so I, I think to your point, if you're talking, yeah, I'm not talking about, you know, the companies that are just off the charts every time, you know, like Amazon was whatever, 23 years ago, whatever, like it's not, a, it's, it's bigger than that, first of all. Um, and so I, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying like a company that could be growing 25, 30% a year. Um, but what what like hit the stock hardest this time was Twilio came out. They grew like 15% this time around and said, next quarter, we're going to grow. We believe we're going to grow by 5% year over year. And we won't give an outlook past that. So like that is Drastic. no matter how you define high growth, that's not it. <laughs> like <laughs> that is not it. But this is a hard time for B2B right now, like a really hard time for B2B. Um, and so it, it's understandable. And the thing I want to check myself on, because I think you're fully right. I mean, like, I didn't do anything that day, right? I'm just like, let me make sure that my take, because I could easily just say, it's hard for B2B, 
18 months, it's you know, things will be back. Or I'm making up a time frame, right? Yeah, yeah. But but I just want to make sure that that's that's still my belief system. But you're right. It's either unprofitable train wreck or or a uh, uh, lifetime buying growth. opportunity. Like yeah, uh, yeah. So the companies I work with are typically go- growing 30 percent a year, and man, I'll tell you, there's no layoffs happening. <laughs> If we're being fiscally conservative, oh, we're probably not hiring and trying you're to be more efficient. You're saying your like Pennsylvania grocery store is a thirty. Oh no, I, annual... I'm sorry. I'm talking in uh, my personal business life. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. They're smaller companies still. Yeah, still. Like I've just said, it's tough to grow thirty percent a year and lose thirty percent of your workforce. That's all I'm saying. It is. It is. That's kind of the point. Going back to your quote. Because the the 30%, it's less likely that that 30% was working on today's revenue. That 30% was likely working on tomorrow's revenue. And so losing that 30% and still pushing is like, it's tougher. It's a lot tougher. So that's your point. Fascinating case. I appreciate you letting me give you a hard time on that one. All right. And as we continue our round the world tour of things near and dear to Dougal's heart, we're going to ARC. So this is a few days old. This is from May 8th. but if you were to buy $10,000 worth of ARC Innovation Fund right now, here's what you'd be getting. I'm not going to hit all the names because there's a bunch, but you'd roughly be getting 1000 bucks of Tesla, so like 10% of the portfolio, 750 bucks worth of Zoom, 720 bucks worth of Roku, 660 bucks worth of Coinbase, 600 bucks worth of Square. It goes on. There's... 500 bucks worth of Shopify, 500 bucks worth of DraftKings, 350 bucks worth of Roblox, like 300 bucks worth of Twilio. It, I don't know why this struck, this is crazy to see because <laughs> these are all names that I would, that I almost consider uninvestable. Maybe with like <laughs> Roblox is the one exception. It's just, that's the whole portfolio, man. <laughs> it, this this takes what I just said to the next level. Like this is truly either train wreck or car wreck. There's like, no I, either. I, this is a, a wreck. And, and again, two other things about this is that you're paying for this. Like you are. Yeah. You, there's there's a high expense ratio relative, and and who you're. I don't want to bring this back to the individual. But I really do. Who you're paying is uh, like just, I don't know, off the chain and like not in a good way. I don't mean, I'm not talking about how those J4s are off the chain. I'm talking about fees. Yes, the fees with the ARC Innovation Fund are high. I don't remember off the top of my head, but they're like unusually high. And yeah. If you like these names, go buy these names and you don't have to deal with the schizophrenic nature of her like changing her mind twice a week about remember a few months back we were breaking down something where she like bought and sold the same stock within three days of each other. It's basically day trading at times. Just fascinating. I continue to be just as disgusted at this portfolio (laughs) as I was two years ago. You're nothing if not consistent. It's good. Discipline. (laughs) Discipline. Sometimes when I see that there's a stock that's been hit, ETF stock, whatever it might be, usually stock that's been hit. I might go, oh, that's let me let me look at that, right? And it might just be worth like I'll look at it and go, okay, no, 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 like it, whatever. Something's throwing me off. 
with something like ARK, and this is your reaction to all of the, maybe not all, but at least most of the stocks that are in there, there's no interest that like comes to me. I have, don't need to to look at it. And some things kind of, oh, yeah. you know, just fall into that category. Yeah. Um, one of those that I did recently is um, looked at AT&T because it was at like, I'm just eyeballing this here. I think uh, 2006 prices. And it's just like, yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> there's nothing. There's a reason it's at 2006 prices. Yeah. <laughs> but I always have to look, man. We need to talk about the CFO of Helen of Troy Limited. Oh. I don't know what Helen of Troy does, just but it doesn't matter for this conversation. Uh, his name is Brian Glass, Grass, actually. I've never seen this, and this is equal parts. I'm going to stand up and applaud, and equal parts cringeworthy beyond belief. So he has some stock options that are about to hit. I think the stock price is around 95 bucks a share. <laughs> he actually bought a significant amount of puts betting against the stock <laughs> at 95 bucks a share. Now, the brilliant part of this is he probably, how many people have we talked about on the show that like, like the Peloton leader team that went and bought their mansions um, and used their stock collateral as for those loans and then the stock went down 80 percent, and all of a sudden yeah. they couldn't afford their mansion anymore like he's protected himself from that because if the stock falls off a cliff and he's already spent the money he makes money on the puts and he's fine so in in that sense i applaud it but man <laughs> can you imagine being a leader a leader of a public company and actually betting against your own company just the optics of that like yeah. I'm sure his talking point, or and I haven't done deep research. I imagine his talking point has to be like, "Listen, I just it's just financial math. I just wanted to hedge my bets that I have great belief in the future prospects of the company." But the way you actually show that is you buy more stock. You don't bet <laughs> against the stock. Yeah, it's like you you've said all the time talking about shorting. Like what you are doing is you are betting against a group of employees that are coming in every day and putting in their hard work and trying to feed their families and et cetera. Mm -hmm. If you are a leader of that group of employees, I don't know what, I don't know what exactly that says to your point. Optically, this is taking, taking out the fact that it's likely a large part of, like you said, math, it's likely a large part of their portfolio. And so financially, does it make sense? Sure. Yeah. But you can just, just can't do that oh man props props to our boy brian you're welcome on the show anytime you want we'd love to talk about how you think your team is going to underperform or your stock maybe you think your team's <laughs> great but your stock is overvalued by 10 times so you're just taking those bets against it love maybe it. maybe it's a uh like a psychological play you know like it gets people riled up Listen, the market is against us, guys. Uh, sir, actually, it's not the market. It's you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What's in your fishbowl? Oh, that's it for me, man. That's all. Okay, one last. We won't do a deep dive, even though it's worthy of a deep dive. Um, ProPublica did a, a breakdown piece on We Buy Ugly Houses. I bet you've seen the billboards. I always thought that it was really clever because... Just saying like we buy ugly houses, it 
clearly the the person that picks up the phone and calls that number is like clearly someone that's in either thinks their house is ugly or is in a situation where they're looking for a quick sale. So simply from like a financial arbitrage opportunity, I always thought the framing was great. Turns out the framing is great. And maybe the company culture is built <laughs> entirely on that. Hold on. I always thought blah, blah, blah was amazing. Turns out it was amazing. Is that, is that what you just said? Well, uh, there's joking. aspects of it that are amazing. When you're taking advantage of people with dementia to sell their house or people who have medical bills for their kids. I mean, read the article. So. It goes, in, okay. it goes into it. this in a way that is not good um, and doesn't really seem human like at times. Now, it's a franchisee and or a franchise model. And so I think you get your... I'm not sure that the corporate headquarters is 100% evil, maybe only 55% <laughs> evil. <laughs> And then the yeah. franchises. Yeah. Uh, but I think this type of reporting is important. And um, I'd encourage you to read it. To We Buy Ugly Houses credit, they have already addressed some of these issues. And they do have documentation in place that actually says some of the things that happened here are completely wrong. But also actions speak louder than words. Like, there's a, a case of a, a grandmother that sold her house who had a dementia, I believe. And they spent three years in court trying to battle to make that sale go through, even when it became crystal clear that it was messed up. The sale never should have happened in the first place. A lot of these cases, Dougals, they, I mean, the house might have been worth 500K and they offer someone $150,000. And if you're that disconnected from the market, you're not in a proper place to be selling your yeah, home. So yeah. it's messed um, up. I'll, I'll put that out on the sub stack. All right, guys. Uh, we ask every week that you share this episode with a friend. That really helps the show continue to grow. Write and review the podcast and um, hit all things Skippy Doogles, skippydoogles.com. Again, listener mail is skippydoogles at gmail.com. Send us your takes on munger please <laughs> please 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 uh, talk to you soon love it.